Well, let's, let's pray. Father, for this day, we thank you. We thank you uh, for this season that we are now entering, the hope of Easter and our anticipation of it. We thank you that we serve a living Savior. We thank you that we have hope for the future because of the hope we have in Christ. We thank you that Jesus came that first Palm Sunday to present himself as king and comes even today to present himself as king into our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that now as we look at your word and we encounter again this living Christ who makes claims on our lives, I pray that you would give grace to us and by your spirit open up our eyes and our hearts to see the places where we need to surrender to his kingship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Palm Sunday, uh, Easter is coming. Praise God. We've just finished up uh, our season of Lent. If you've been following along uh, with us as a congregation, um, tying together this season of discernment, uh, the Antioch process, and using Lent as, a, as an opportunity to prepare ourselves for what it is that the Lord would want to speak into our lives. So hopefully you've been uh, tracking along. Maybe you've been using our devotional guide Uh, The Quiet My Soul devotional guide uh, drew to a close on Saturday, yesterday, but we have a new devotional guide called Rejoice My Soul. uh, Lent is a season of quieting and humility. Uh, Easter is a season of rejoicing, and so having properly uh, quieted our souls through Lent, we are prepared to rejoice uh, with Easter. So I encourage you to take uh, that devotional guide, use that uh, this week. Even if you weren't using it through the season of Lent, you can pick it up and, and track along uh, this week as we move through Holy Week and prepare for Easter. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and I was reflecting on the fact that I, I think I've preached five or six Palm Sundays here at Calvary. I would rather preach Easter, but I can't pry Todd out of the pulpit for Easter <laughs> Uh, morning. So, been you know, think about what do you preach after you've preached uh, so many Palm Sundays? And I don't want to you know preach the same thing that I've preached before. But then I reflected that you all don't remember what I would preach anyway from last year. <laughs> so probably doesn't matter. Just grab one of the five and recycle them through. No, I di- I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I worked on my sermon. <laughs> worked on my sermon this week. Uh, but was thinking about this on Saturday, and I was sitting at home Saturday on the couch. I was reading Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which no doubt many of you have read, uh, <laughs> and um, written by a, a sixth-century uh, Christian Neoplatonist. And, and Maylee, my three-year-old, was sitting next to me on the couch, and she was watching uh, her show. And she asked me what I was reading, and I told her, <laughs> which, you know. She said, read it out loud. And I said, well, I don't think you want, you don't want me to read it out loud. And she insisted. So I read a paragraph for her. And then I quit, went back to reading. She said, no, keep going, she said. So for about a half an hour, I read out loud to her Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. And I thought, well, maybe I should just read to you all Boethius's Consolation <laughs> of Philosophy. But then I decided not to do that either. So in any case, we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 21, Uh, that John and Naomi have already read for us. And we'll stay in Matthew uh, because Matthew uh, is the sermon series that we're already in looking at Christ as king. And here, uh, uniquely on Palm Sunday, Christ presents himself as king to his own people. 
And uh, in our passage today, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, we, of course, are we're skipping ahead in Matthew's gospel because of Palm Sunday. But Jesus, for the first time, publicly presents himself as king. He hasn't done this yet. And so this will be the first time that he explicitly declares himself to be the king of the Jewish people and the Jewish Messiah. And we're going to explore three distinct responses to Jesus when he presents himself as king. We're going to look at the response of the crowds, the response of the religious leaders, and then finally the response of the children. And these three groups, in many ways, mirror contemporary responses to Jesus, not just of the culture at large, but I would say even our own personal responses to Jesus. Some of you here this morning, I know you observe the Christian life from the, from the margins or from the outside. You're not yet a Christian. You don't claim to be a Christian, but you come with some degree of regularity to church. And there's something at least enough about Jesus that has you coming each week. And I would encourage you to find yourself in this story of Palm Sunday. As Jesus presents himself to his people as king, he is even today presenting himself to you as king. Which of these three groups of people are you most like? Others of us, most of us here this morning are followers of Christ, and I encourage you likewise to find yourself in this story. If you're like me, you'll likely see that you represent or could be represented a bit by each of the three responses. Before we focus our attention on these responses, though, I want to take just a brief moment to talk about some of the historical context that's happening around this event uh, in the Jewish uh, calendars, which will help us understand a bit of the responses that are being given by the people. It's the Passover, this Palm Sunday. It's the season of Passover, and the city has swelled probably even maybe as much as four times its normal size, some scholars think. Maybe a quarter of a million people or more are there in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a major city in the Palestine area, but around the high holy days like Passover, it would swell with, with sojourners coming in from around the empire to, to celebrate the Passover and to present their offerings and sacrifices at the temple. Jesus, up until this point in his public ministry, which has lasted about three years or so, has largely avoided being in Jerusalem. He is developing a bit of an opposition to his ministry from the religious leaders. They are located in Jerusalem, and the temple is the seat of their power. And so Jesus has stayed off in the countryside for the most part, teaching the crowds there. The crowds would leave Jerusalem to go find him, or teaching his disciples, performing his miracles outside of Jerusalem. But now comes the climactic moment in the gospel accounts when Jesus rides into the lion's den, as it were. He rides into Jerusalem to provoke a confrontation between himself and the religious leaders. The other thing to know is that the city is under Roman rule. Uh, the Jewish people have at various points uh, lived independently, but now at this point in their history, the Roman Empire has reached its zenith of power and it has spread all the way in over uh, to the Middle East. And so the Roman Empire now uh, has control over the nation of Israel. Okay, 
So, the first response, the crowds. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Matthew tells us, and he is intentionally invoking and laying claim to the messianic prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Matthew tells us in 21 verse 4 that when Jesus came into Jerusalem choosing to ride in on a donkey, it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, writing this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If you were to read all of Zechariah chapter 9, it's a messianic a prophecy about how one day God would send his Jewish Messiah, the, the king of the Jewish people, who would deliver his people from the oppressive powers around them, from the other nations that had oppressed them. And so when Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is laying claim for himself as the prophesied Messiah of Zechariah chapter 9. And the crowds understand this to be the case, we can see by their response. When the crowds see Jesus riding in on the donkey, they lay their cloaks down in front of him in respect, they wave palm branches in honor of him, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, David, you may recall, was the great Jewish king to whom God had promised an eternal kingly covenant. And the Jewish people had been taught by their prophets to expect that a son of David would one day come to sit upon David's now vacant throne, and that this son would reign over the Jewish people and make them the crown jewel of all the nations in the world. This was a long overdue promise in the minds of many. The Jewish people, as I already mentioned, had in the last four to 500 years had on-again, off-again sorts of ways of, of achieving independence. They had at times been ruled by greater imperial powers. At other times, they had thrown off the yoke of those powers for a season. The Maccabees, perhaps that's a, uh, it's a book in the, uh, the, the Catholic Bible that you may have heard of, uh, referencing uh, a... a um, uh, a dynasty of warrior priests who had uh, brought uh, independence to the nation of Israel for a time. But even in those days, they had not had a king. David's throne in Jerusalem has been vacant for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when the crowds hail Jesus as the son of David, they are welcoming him as their long-awaited king. It's a supremely political moment. And if the Romans had understood what was happening at that time, as they were going to understand in a few days when Jesus becomes, comes before Pilate, if they understood what was being said about Jesus and what Jesus was claiming for himself, they would have likely arrested him on the spot. Matthew tells us in verse 10 that, that there have been rumors of Jesus that have preceded him. So to those that have lived in Jerusalem or in and around the area, perhaps in the countryside, the near countryside, and have come in for the Passover, uh, they have heard of Jesus as a prophet, a teacher, a rabbi, and perhaps most significantly as a miracle worker. And so they have heard of this young man, Jesus. 
But many who have traveled in from around the empire to be there for the Passover would not have heard of Jesus. They would have only heard of him having shown up in Jerusalem and the swirl of noise that is being buzzed around. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, some of them perhaps had seen him before, others had heard of him because they were local, and others had heard rumors of him as they came in from the Passover. He's the source of much curiosity and interest. But the important point here is that the crowds are primarily interested in Jesus as king and the assumed positive political implications that this has for them. With the son of David on the throne, the Roman yoke could be thrown off. And who better to sit upon David's throne than this wonder-working prophet who could do miracles in the vein of Elijah and Moses, the great prophets of old. What they desire is political freedom, and Jesus, they believe, will give it to them, except, of course, that he doesn't. And in just a few days, the crowd will turn on him when it becomes clear that he will not deliver to them the kingdom that they desire. The crowds welcome Jesus because of what they thought he would bring rather than for who he was. In what ways do we do the same? We desire prosperity or healing. We desire restored marriage or we desire our rebellious children to come home. We desire to be popular at school, to be good in our sports, to have a successful career or even a successful ministry all fine things in themselves. And we are believers enough in Jesus that we want him on our side. But in subtle or not so subtle ways, we are merely using him to achieve some higher end. Luke records in his accounts of the triumphal entry that Jesus wept after he had been received by the crowds. Let that sink in. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The crowds hail him as king, and Jesus weeps over their praise. He saw through their praise that it was duplicitous, and that it was not praise of him, but praise of what they believed wrongly that he could bring them. Does Jesus weep over our praise? Is he too often just a means to an end, a lever that we pull to get what we really want? If you use Jesus as a means to a higher end, he will only disappoint you as he did the crowds. Jesus did not come to be a means to an end. He came to be the end. Perhaps better stated, he will not be a means to some other end than himself. He is the door that leads to the life that is himself. No one likes to feel used. No one likes to feel that you value them primarily because of what you can get from them. People want to feel like you love them for their own sake, because of who they are, not simply for what they can give. Jesus wants to be loved and valued the same way. What do you want from Jesus 
more than you want Jesus himself? In what ways are you tempted to ally yourself with Jesus because you think he will get you what you want? The crowds wanted a kingdom more than they wanted Jesus as their king. Be reminded this morning that Jesus is worthy of our praise and devotion, not because of what he brings, but because of who he is. Of course, loving Jesus for who he is rather than what he can give us presupposes that we actually know him. Do you know him? The crowds that had gathered on that first Palm Sunday, many of them had only heard rumor of Jesus. They could only think of him as a political king who could give them political freedom. They could not worship him as a person because they didn't know him as a person. The good news of Easter, which we will celebrate next week, is that the founder of the Christian religion is not just a teacher or a wise sage, an ethicist that teaches us how to live our lives. He is a risen person who even now, today, in this moment, stands ready to be known. Have you met him? I've met him. And if you've met him, then you know what it is to love him for who he is, not simply because of what he can give you. So the response of the crowds, it's insufficient. The response of the religious leaders, the religious leaders, they hear the the children crying out and the crowds crying out and the the religious leaders rebuke Jesus and tell him to silence the children from saying that Jesus is the son of David. The crowds understood Jesus' claim to be king, and they rejoiced. The religious leaders understood Jesus' claim to kingship, and it made them afraid. If Jesus was coming as the son of David to throw off the Roman yoke, then that would not go well for them. They had cozied up with the Romans, been co-opted by Roman power. In the Gospels, you'll hear about the Pharisees at times. You'll hear about the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes. It can be hard to keep them all uh, all separate. One thing, they were all opposed to Jesus, but they were doing it from different ends. The Pharisees were the hard right of the religious leadership flank in the Jewish empire. They were actually very much against Rome and Roman rule. They had not been co-opted by Roman power. The the religious left, the left-leaning leadership uh, in the Jewish nation was by the Sadducees, which were the party of the chief priests and the scribes. And the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, is who is, is, who is rebuking Jesus here. And uh, these folks had made their peace with the Romans, and they had figured out how to live expediently with the Romans so as to hold on to power. And the last thing that they want is some messianic figure riding into Jerusalem, proclaiming himself king and bringing down upon the Jewish people the Roman legions. It would mess up their hold on power. Like the crowds, they misunderstand the nature of Jesus' kingdom, but they rightly recognize that Jesus is a threat to their sovereignty. Matthew tells us, the word he uses here is translated indignant. It, This word could also be translated vexed, distressed, angry. I think probably it's a good definition to just roll those all up together into a single word. 
They're, they're vexed, distressed, and angry and indignant at what is being said of Jesus, that he is the king. And they reject Jesus because to accept him as king means that they will have to give up their power. They will have to surrender their sovereignty to Jesus' sovereignty. The irony here, of course, is that they have already surrendered their sovereignty. In stiff-arming Jesus, they think that they are holding on to their kingdom. The reality is that they are keeping at arm's length the very one, the only one who can truly bless them. They would rather be under Roman rule than Jesus' rule because they think the Romans give them a better shot at power than Jesus will give them. In what ways are we like the religious leaders? We stiff-arm Christ because we think that his arrival will mess up what we have going. Some of us do this with our whole lives. It's why we have not yet become Christians. We resist becoming a Christian because we know that Jesus brings with him a kingdom, a reign that will supplant our own. Jesus does not come merely to advise or to be our friend. He comes as our rightful king. And thus to receive him as king means that we must lay down our own scepter. To embrace his sovereignty is to lay aside our own. The Jewish leaders were under the hand of the Romans. Whose hand are you under as an alternative to Christ's? Under no one's hand, you say. Is that really any better? Consider the limits of your own wisdom, the limits of your own power, the limits of your own character. Are you really fit to be a king even over just yourself? I adjure you. Have you ever been adjured? You've just been adjured. I adjure you. I adjure you. Surrender your sovereignty to Jesus. You will not regret it. He is better able to care for what you care for than you are able to care for it yourself. Some of us, the Christians among us, most of us here, perhaps do not blatantly reject Christ's kingship outright, but we can be like the religious leaders when we section off certain areas of our lives. We invite and welcome Christ's kingship and lordship and sovereignty into certain areas of our lives, but then there are other areas where, no thank you, I'll keep control of that myself. We think that having Christ too intimately involved in our business life will complicate things. Having Christ too intimately involved in our network of friends will complicate things. Having Christ too intimately involved in our recreational habits will complicate things. I mean, let's be realistic here. That Sermon on the Mount thing... It's a nice ideal, but who can really live like that? The whole do unto others and turn the other cheek, that would sink my business. And that don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth bit and instead seek first the kingdom of God. I mean, really, if I put as much energy into pursuing God as I pursue my 401k, well, where would that leave me at retirement time? And all that talk about marriage being a lifelong union between one man and one woman, does Jesus not understand the culture I live in? I mean, if I were to go around saying that, 
Forget about it. And so we bracket off certain sections of our lives from Jesus' rule. You can rule here, 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 and here, but I'll rule here. We resist Jesus in certain areas of our lives because we're afraid he will complicate things. And it's true. Christ does complicate things for the better. Jesus calls us to die to self in order to live, to lose our life in order to find it. That's the ironic, unexpected, and remarkable genius of the gospel. Jesus is himself our example of what it means to throw one's self into the care of God, to surrender every aspect of our life to him in the confidence that Jesus is not riding into our life and proclaiming us king in order to sack it, but to raise it up. Let Christ's reign come to your finances, your family, your entertainment choices, your friends, your vocation, your social standing. And when you do, you will see that he will bring a blessing. There may be a cross before the blessing. Indeed, there will almost certainly be a cross before the blessing. But the gospel promise is that if we share in Christ's cross, we will also share in his resurrection. What areas of your life do you need to surrender to God and invite Christ in? I know the areas in my life where I am tempted to keep God at arm's length, to forestall the lordship of Christ. What areas of your life are you tempted to do the same? What door in the room of your heart, as it were, the home of your heart, has Christ been knocking on saying, I'd like to go into this room, please? And you're saying, no, the dining room is quite fine. Or have you seen the kitchen? Or check out the bedroom. And he says, no, I want to see this room. What room is that in your life that you are preventing Christ from entering into because you think that doing so will mean your undoing? It will mean your undoing, but it will mean your remaking as well. Trust him with your life. Surrender your whole life to God. Next Sunday, we celebrate baptisms at Easter, and baptisms are a picture of the gospel, a dying of ourselves to our old way of life with Christ and arising again to a new way of life in Christ. Perhaps next Sunday, you need to be baptized as a sign of your willingness to let Christ reign in your life. Perhaps you need to be baptized as one who is already a follower of Christ. Perhaps you need to be baptized as one who for the first time needs to make the decision to become a follower of Christ. There's still time for that. You can talk to me. You can talk to Pastor Josh. We would love to baptize you on Easter Sunday. This brings us to our third response, the crowds, the religious leaders, and then finally, the children. The crowds rejoice in Jesus because they think he is a king who will give them what they want. The religious leaders reject Jesus because they think he is a king who will complicate their lives. Only the children get it right. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the little children praise him. Jesus weeps over the praise of the crowds, but he quotes Psalm 8 in defense of the children's praise. The, re the religious leaders rebuke 
Jesus and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? Tell them to be silent. They shouldn't be saying this of you. And Jesus not only receives the praise of the children, but he uh, raises the bar even higher because he defends them by quoting from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a remarkable psalm. It's a psalm in which uh, the psalmist David is proclaiming praise to God who made heaven and earth the one who has created the entire cosmos. And Jesus is saying, and in Psalm 8, the psalmist declares that even infants recognize the greatness of the creator. And so when Jesus uses Psalm 8 to defend the children's praise, he is saying that he is the one being praised in Psalm 8, the creator of all things. Jesus is not only the son of David, the Jewish king, He is the Lord Most High who has made the heavens and the earth and who is worthy of all praise. And the children are the ones who give him the rightful praise. What is it about the children that makes their praise acceptable to Jesus? All throughout Matthew's gospel, all throughout the gospels really uh, in general, but all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus highlights the importance of coming to God as a little child. And the thing that Jesus seems to most affirm about the significance of children is their ability to live in a state of humble dependence. You might recall the uh, account where Jesus' disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, hearing them argue, calls over a child and sits the child in the midst of them. And he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become Like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Little children are not without sin, as any parent uh, in the room can attest, no doubt. But they are, by nature, more dependent and trusting than adults. It is the humility, the posture of humility that children have that invokes Jesus' commendation of them. Children are more trusting than adults because they have to be in order to survive. Little children, smallest children, do not yet have the mental capacity to project themselves into the future. The only thing they can do is trust that their parents have the future well in hand. When a child is well-adjusted and healthy and content... It's not because the child has everything figured out. The child is well-adjusted, happy, and content because they believe that you have everything figured out. If you as the parent are trustworthy and reliable and you have committed to care for them, then what do they have to worry about? The posture of a child is fundamentally a posture of humble, faith-filled dependence. But as we grow into adulthood, our capacity to think into the future, to project into the future and anticipate the future grows. It necessarily grows. We become less inclined to trust, more inclined to rely upon our own resources. Thinking into the future is necessary. It's a necessary part of becoming an adult, but it complicates our relationship with God. Because God calls us to live our lives in humble, childlike dependence upon him, just as a child naturally depends upon his or her parent. 
And it's a delicate dance that we have to learn to live with the responsible awareness of the future, but not in such a way that it consumes our thoughts and energies and distracts us from the work of God, which is at hand before us today. We are called to live with a humble dependence upon the person of Jesus and to rest in the care of our Heavenly Father. This is the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount, that we need not worry about the future because that's God's job. We have God to worry about the future for us. Our job is to live in the present, pursuing the things of God, trusting that God will take care of tomorrow. My best friend growing up was this guy, Jason, and we would often you know, do things together as uh, high school kids do. And whenever we would be driving somewhere, we had this little thing this little exchange that would often happen. If he was taking a route to where we were going that was unfamiliar to me or I didn't think was the right way, I would say, hey, why are you going this way? Shouldn't we be going this way? And he would uh, invariably take offense to the fact that I was questioning his judgment as to why he was going a certain way. And he would refuse to explain himself to me. In fact, I would ask the question, and he would ignore it entirely. He just wouldn't even acknowledge it. And then if I kept pestering him, as invariably I would, because this is the thing that we did, he would finally rebuke me and tell me to just trust him, relax, and to enjoy the music. And he understood somewhat rightly that I was questioning him because I didn't trust his judgment about where we were going and the route that he was taking. He wanted to be trusted without having to explain himself. God, in some ways, is similar. But the difference is not simply that God doesn't want to have to explain himself to us, though he could. The difference is that the complexities of this world and the cause and effect relationships of our lives and all the events in it are such that he cannot explain his plans to us. Our minds are too small. It would be like trying to read Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy to a three-year-old. <laughs> the sound of the voice was comforting, but it meant nothing to her. When God doesn't explain himself to us, it's not because he is demanding in a gratuitous way that he be trusted. It's because we can't understand what it is that he would have to explain to us, and all we have is the childlike dependence to believe that he knows even though we cannot. When, like little children, we lay aside our concern for the future and our need to know, and we live fully into the present, we are saying that we trust God, that we believe he is good and capable and will take care of us. So how easy is it for you to worship Jesus in the posture of the children? simply because of your confidence in who he is and his ability to care for you? Does your need to control and your need to know rob you of the joy that could otherwise come through faith? Be reminded this morning that God loves you and he has sent Jesus to care for you. And Jesus, as the good shepherd, has promised that all whom the Father place into his hand, he will hold on to and raise up on the last day, and he will lose no one that the Father has given to him.
This doesn't mean that life will be easy in every way. Jesus placed himself into the care of his father and went to the cross. Life will be hard. But what it does mean is that it will be, life will be what is needed. That God will give us in Christ what is needed for the moments of our lives to bring us to the place that he has for us so that he can bless us in the fullest measure with which he blesses the Son. Give up the illusion that you can control your own fate. That if you just had more information, you could be at peace. And rest in the care of the one who most certainly can care for your life and bring you the blessing that you so desperately long for. So what ways do you need to recalibrate your response to Jesus this morning? Are you tempted to worship him like the crowds because of what he can give you? A utilitarian praise? Do you resist him like the religious leaders, fearing that he will complicate your life, not having faith to believe that if you give him what you care for, even your whole life, that he can care for it better than you? Or do you praise him like the children with hearts of humble, trusting dependence, knowing that he will care for you as the good shepherd and that his promise is sure? Give your life to Jesus. The whole of it, the parts of it that you are tempted to keep for yourself, he will do right by you. Amen? Father, thank you for giving us Christ. We can find no earthly king that could bless our lives in the way that Jesus can. And we cannot make kings of ourselves to try to bless our own lives, Lord. If we are honest, we look at the messes that we can make of ourselves and we recognize that our own power, our own wisdom, our own character is insufficient for even governing ourselves. So God, we want, I pray that we would want to open ourselves up to the reign of Christ, to let him in, not just as a king who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, to a concept, an ideal, a religion, but to the living king now who even this morning is in this room asking that, you, that we would recognize his dominion and his sovereignty in our lives, not so that he can take away our joy, but so that he can bring it. God, give us grace to have faith to believe that. In your son's name, amen.